0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look usually at new movies in theaters and then connects them to other interesting films of days gone by that you might want to know about. And uh, this week we're doing something a little different uh, because it's that time of year when there's really not a lot of great movies in theaters. And uh, we're going to take another dive, I think a third dive into the Roger Ebert, Great Films Compendiums. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name's Carsten Knox. I'm a film writer. Uh, I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I hope you enjoy this look at some great films from years gone by that really deserve a second look. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag?
0: I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast.
1: I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation
0: with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. So, Stephen, so great to talk to you about old and great movies again. Uh, now, as you said, we are looking at films from Roger Ebert's great movies list. Now, this is something he published a number of books uh, talking about his basically collecting his favorite films and his his most glowing reviews. Uh, we have... Have sort of cross-referenced these lists, uh, most of which I think, all of which are available to be read online, and we sort of looked at ones that we had not seen in a long time or had never seen. It's a great excuse to watch some old exactly, movies. Exactly.
1: Yeah, just to dive into the the DVD piles.
0: Yeah, you no, know, for sure. And of course, with your vast library of DVDs, <laughs> uh, and with the help of sometimes of the library, and I've got a couple of them as well. We were able to to find three that we had either not seen or not seen for a long time. And it allowed me, and I'll admit this, as it's kind of a little bit humbling and embarrassing as a, a film lover. I've not seen much Bergman. So we decided. The three movies, first I should say. Ingmar or Ingrid? Oh, In- Ingrid, I've seen more of. Ingmar, <laughs> less so. Um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, this is uh, these three films really don't have much connection at all. Two are French. One is Swedish. Uh, but, uh, yes, the three movies we're going to talk about today, one is The Seventh Seal, a very early Bergman film from 57. Then we're going to go on to Army of Shadows, Jean-Pierre Melville from 1969. And then Caché, otherwise known as Hidden, from 2005. That's Michael Haneke's chilly thriller. Yeah, I guess the three things that connect them is that there's a lot of existential dread
1: yes. r- running through all three of these films. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and it was really good for me to go back and watch. Now I want to see more Bergman. And having watched your your copy of The Seventh Seal, uh, now Roger Ebert, Ebert wrote about the, about this film. He said. Films are no longer concerned with the silence of God, but with the chattering of men. We are <laughs> uneasy to find Bergman asking existential questions in an age of irony. And Bergman himself, starting with Persona in 1967, found more subtle ways to ask the same questions. But the directness of The Seventh Seal is its strength. This is an uncompromising film regarding good and evil with the same simplicity as faith and faith as its
1: hero. Yeah, that sums it up. I mean, the, the great thing about the Seventh Seal is that everything is on the table. You don't have to read too much into the symbology of it or, or look for hidden themes. Everything is right out there in the open. Uh, the, it's set during uh, the Middle Ages uh, or maybe even the Dark Ages. I'm not sure. But it's basically, we have two soldiers coming back from the Crusades and uh, the plague is sweeping through Northern Europe. And uh, so there's a lot of talk about death, about faith, about the existence of God. If there's a God, why is this happening to us? Why is mm-hmm. everyone dying? Yeah, um, God seems to be amiss, though death seems is, to be absent. is right there. He's playing chess with our <laughs> lead actor. He's a character in the film yeah. uh, looking all gothic and spooky. And uh, and uh, the, the, the film, of course, uh, caused a huge sensation when it premiered in, I think, 1957. In fact, it's hard to believe that in 1957, uh, Bergman made... Uh, this film, the Seven Seal, and then he made wild Strawberries, which is another in my opinion another masterpiece um all both in the same year uh, and Wild Strawberries is of course a gentler film about a, a an aging um academic who's uh, sort of looking back on his life as he, he travels uh to i think it's Stockholm because he's supposed to appear at a conference or something like that. I haven't seen it in a while. I'm just trying to remember and as he journey on this journey, he has these flashbacks along the way to his younger life and uh and it's it's a beautiful film, gorgeous film, and uh, and also very sentimental. And it also s- stars uh, Victor Seestrom, who was uh, one of the first great Swedish directors in the silent years, and uh, and and I think he was in Hollywood. He made some great films in Hollywood. The Wind with Lily and Gish is, comes to mind. There, There's some others. And then I think he returned home and, and continued to make films in Sweden, but wasn't kind of faded out of sight, I guess, after that. So it was nice to see him uh, revive for that film. But The Seventh Seal, of course, is a much different film. It's, it's you know, grim because it's all about death and its omnipresent uh, nature uh, all around us. But it's also very funny. There's this is a, the
0: thing that really surprised me, yeah, given yeah. given the reputation of Bergman as this very self-serious, existential, as you say, filmmaker. Uh, but it's it's quite light in places, and I love that. I uh, You know, the, the crusading knight, Antonius Block, which is a great name, played by a very young Max von Sydow, who still kind of looks, looks like he's older. There's <laughs> like, someone who's always been a little bit, you know, weathered and grim. Um though I'm still glad to see he's going strong these days, uh, and his squire Johns, played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, they've, as you mentioned, returned from the Crusades and the first thing that happens is they meet, death visits upon them on the beach, and uh, the knight sort of puts him off and challenges to him to a game of chess, and then the game continues through the story. Now the knight knows this is just a delaying tactic, that at a certain point death will visit upon him, but uh, this way he's, he manages to keep death at bay, you know, just through the course of the running time. Meanwhile, the squire winds up being kind of the comedic presence here, the the comedic uh, levity, I and mean, he sings songs like "Oh, fate is a reprobate, <laughs> you, my friend, and unfortunate." I love songs. Now you bound in haste, now worms lay you to waste. I mean, this is uh, this is actually pretty funny stuff.
1: Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand, uh, uh, who plays the squire, is. He's actually in more Bergman films than Max von Sydow is. Von Sydow is kind of, in in you know inextricably linked with uh, you know with Bergman in a lot of ways, and he's in some great films of his. But you know, uh, Gunnar is is like, he's there like at, almost at the very start, and he's there right at the end. I think in his last theatrical feature. So uh, and uh, and he's a real chameleon. Like he really does not play the same character twice, and uh, it, it's it's fun to go back and, and see some of those films and see. What he accomplishes over the course of these films, mm-hmm. um, it you know, the, it it the film is amazing on so many levels. Uh, it became kind of the the standard bearer for foreign film in the late '50s and early '60s. Like like The Seven Seal became the epitome of, of what foreign film was all about. And then and then you know and then you know you also had Fellini and you had maybe Truffaut and Godard and that was kind of like the the face of of foreign films. And The Seven Seal, I think. Almost became mocked for being serious and grim. Oh, and, sure, and it's, it's way and a challenge, and it's it's totally made fun of in so many places. Oh, so much. Well, we watched the the trailer for Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which has a, a scene which I'm guessing was cut from the the final film. But the, the Terry Jones, I think is death, and he's with a, a knight, one of the knights. I, I don't. I can't remember which python it is. Oh, it's Terry Gilliam in his in, in Night Garb, and they're playing chess on the beach, and then one of them gets a pie in the face. Um, and, of course, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is probably the most uh, prominent uh, sure. exact spoof of uh, of Seventh Seal. Yeah, and Woody uh, Allen, of course, mind Bergman. For, oh, yeah. Love, you can, and, love and Death definitely pays homage to this film as you well. Can, you can really
0: see it, though. You can see, understand why. I mean, Allen's humor is for years has been, you know, about existential issues about life and direction and meaning, meaning in life and also death, sex and death. And all of this is kind of the the bedrock there is in Bergman's films uh, in a much more in such a direct way uh, that uh, I guess, you know, I guess stylistically maybe um, – what was the uh, the uh, the Allen film that he made that was in black and
1: white? And Stardust Memories? Stardust Memories, yeah, yeah that's right. That's well, probably the one that looks the most like a Bergman film. Well, I think he hired Bergman's cinematographer, Sam right, right for that one. I, yeah. I, I know he worked with him on a couple of films, probably mm-hmm. a Midsummer Night sex comedy or whatever that other one is, which is a direct, is practically a remake of Bergman's uh, Smiles of a Summer Night. Um, you know, it's all, it's all, you know, it's pretty close <laughs> and certainly and the title kind of let you know that um but uh you know i i saw this film at a pretty young age for the first time i went to wormwoods when they used to um they used to run sort of 35 millimeter current stuff in the kyber building but then they would still show older material you know repertory films if you will, or whatever um in 16 millimeter at the national film board and so i saw it there uh, i saw a lot of films in these scratchy 16 millimeter prints that they got uh, presumably from the uh I think the university of Brandon in Manitoba had a huge collection of, of, of classic films on 16 uh, millimeter. They used to show them at the library or not the library at, um, well, yeah, the, at the Killam, no sorry, Dal art center in the basement uh, art gallery there. They used to get their prints from Brandon and at some point, Brandon stopped loaning things out because I think things were starting to go missing or get damaged and uh, they wanted to keep their collection intact. So then everybody had to resort to video and that sort of thing. Um, so the repertory screenings of those films stopped here and and at uh, Dell, and they switched to VHS or DVD, whatever they could get their hands on, I guess. Um, but I, you know, so I got to see, you know, the the classic beat up sixteen millimeter print uh-huh. of The Seventh Seal, and I, I went with a friend uh, who was, I can't remember which one of us wanted to see it the most, but it was one of those things where like I, you know, like I'd just seen Citizen Kane and I really enjoyed it. And I, you know, cause I thought it was going to be like a challenge or something and it turned like out like homework. Yeah. So like, many of it's like, so I want to know yeah. about movies and these are the important movies and I right. need to see them so I can, you know, get these references later down the road or whatever. And and again, with the seven seal, I couldn't believe how entertaining it was. I, I love the performances, you know, it's kind of sexy in spots, which is, is not something that ever really gets promoted about it or is trumpeted about it. Um, it uh, you know it's you really feel for these characters they're not just archetypes necessarily I mean I, I guess Max von Sydow's knight kind of is but a little bit but
0: yeah Johns is is the is the human you know male and he is certainly. Well, he he certainly is not, uh, you know, he's not squeaky clean. That's for sure. At one point, he tries to get romantic with the girl he meets in the village by telling her he could have raped her, but he didn't. So that proves he's a decent guy. Uh, And then he asks her to be his housekeeper, you know, of course, with strings attached. uh, But he he admits he's married, but he's hoping that his wife is dead by now because he's been away at the Crusades so long. Like, this is just outrageous things to be saying
1: in a film from 1957. Yeah, and he's, you know, he's, it's kind of comic relief, but at the same time, he's got like a huge scar running f- across his scalp and down onto his forehead. So, you know, he's seen some stuff back uh-huh. in the Crusades. Um, it's, it's funny. They never, I don't think they ever really talk about their time in the Crusades, but you know, they've seen some horrific things. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of, it's always kind of underlying, which is why, you know, uh, Vonsito's knight is always concerned about death and, you know, like they went to the Holy Land to, to fight for... Uh, you know, to fight for God and Christianity and yet saw nothing Christian about any of it. So, you know, the, right. he's coming back with all these existential questions. Remind um, me a little bit of Robin and Marion in that regard. Yeah. That, that comes into play there too. Yeah. That uh, borrowed maybe from this, I guess. Oh, probably. And then of course the, with the Ridley Scott movie about the, the crusades, I think has some of that in there as well, mm-hmm. you know, where all of a sudden the Saracens seem way more civilized and ahead of the game as a society than, than the medieval Christians. Um, you know so it's an interesting theme that is fun not fun but you know certainly enjoyable and uh, enriching to see in a movie here it's it's an undercurrent that you kind of have to you know of course they presume that you know something about history going into this film you don't have to like have the crusades explained to you you kind of have to know that it was a terrible business and and that these guys are pretty lucky to have made it back home but and then to find the black plague awaiting for them when they get back
0: yeah i suppose if if these were made originally for swedish audiences you know the swedes would have had you know the standard education where they would have learned all the history of of their own culture as well as European culture and maybe there might be stuff going on in here especially on you know on the front on the the, under the subject of religion that that we might not be watching it now we might not be aware of uh, quite as much Um, you know that's the always the danger and that something gets lost in translation when you watch a film from another culture especially one that was made you know 65 years ago or or 60 years ago Um, but uh, you know, I, as you say, I was really impressed with how much sort of body humor there was. There's there's a the village folk are also very obsessed with death and despair, as you'd imagine, given the black plague is amongst them. Uh, but they, you know, they kill artists and they kill uh, a woman because they think she's a witch. There's all this wanton cruelty and selfishness. There's also the story of the bereft blacksmith who is whose wife has run off with another man. Uh, and you know, there are songs and dancing and and it's all very. Again, you'd mentioned Monty Python, and you can see the influence.
1: Yeah, for sure, especially with the jesters and all that kind of stuff. It, 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 it's almost like it's a, it's kind of a vision of the apocalypse, medieval style, where you know. And then there's even like a segment. There's this parade of penitents who are flogging themselves and so on, and they're talking about the fact that, well, as as the title the title itself refers to you know Revelations and the end of the world and and uh, Armageddon, as it were, and uh, you know. So these. You know, going by the Bible that they have, they think, oh, well, this seems all to be foretold and we're all doomed. Um, And so people are either acting out or being extremely religious one you know there's, there's no middle ground it seems um, not everybody loves this film I, I brought along my copy of uh, David Thompson's new biographical dictionary of film uh, the updated and expanded edition it's got There Will Be Blood on the cover which gives you an idea of how recent this is but but uh, but Thompson is, is occasionally a, a contrarian when it comes to many widely regard, regarded beliefs about classic films and, and great films and so on and he has some you know he has some interesting quirks um you know, and, and, but he's really good at defending his opinions. And, and so he's always a good read. Um, I highly recommend checking this book out. Um, in his chapter on Ingmar Bergman, he feels that Bergman basically doesn't really hit his stride until Persona, uh, about a decade after this film. And, and there's some, some really wonderful films made in that decade, but he feels that, that they're all kind of, uh, leading up to something much better. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as the early films go, he says, in many of these early films, there is the regrettable flavor of this is good for you, he says, it quotes, about what are determinedly bleak neorealist studies of failed love affairs. Admittedly, Bergman never neglected that central topic for such Italian themes as cried out from the streets. He was always fixed on the heart and the soul, but with a bristling neatness that was heartless and depressing. The Seventh Seal is the ultimate step in this rather academic way of recording human torment. Its medievalism and the wholesale allegory now seem frivolous and theatrical diversions from true seriousness. But The Seventh Seal, like Elvira Madigan... Uh, some 10 years later, was the film swallowed by the most people. So, <laughs> you know, as I say, it, it plays into that thing that this became the the archetype of foreign cinema, that it was serious and allegorical and, you know, you needed a, a, a literary degree to to understand it, which, of course, is not the case. Um, in England and America, it made Bergman the central figure in the growth of art house cinema. Many people of my generation may have joined the National Film Theatre in London to see a retrospective survey of Bergman's early films after The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries had come to represent, quote unquote, artistic cinema. The first critical articles that I struggled with as reader and writer were on Bergman. Inevitably, he suffered from being so suddenly revealed to a volatile world. Looking back, it seems no, co- no coincidence that th- those two films are his most pretentious and calculating. Uh, within a few years, he was being mocked and parodied for his earnestness and symbolism. The young cineasts led to the art houses were rediscovering the virtues of the American films that had delighted them as children, and the new French cinema endorsed that love of development and replaced Bergman's concentration with improvisation, humor, offhand tenderness, and a non-Northern feeling the beauty of camera movements, as opposed to the force of composition. So, so basically, he's he's seeing uh, these films as almost kind of stayed right. and and stuffy the moment they came out, as opposed to you know having viewing them through the lens of yeah. time where they they become these time honored classics. I I'm leaning toward more towards uh, towards Ebert's view of this film. Yeah. Well, um, Ebert, he said. I mean, he was much more fond of of all
0: of the work, and he said specifically here from his review of The Seventh Seal, uh, Bergman's spiritual quest is at the center of the films he made in the middle of his career. The Seventh Seal opens that period in which he asked again and again why God seemed absent from the world. In Through a Glass Darkly from 1962, the mentally ill heroine has a vision of God as a spider, in the austere winter light, also from '62, Bjornstrand and von Siedau appear again in the story of a country priest whose faith is threatened by the innocence imminence. Uh, sorry, the imminence of nuclear catastrophe. And then in Persona, '1966, televised images of war cause an actress to simply stop speaking. In the Mast, the masterpiece. This is Ebert's. Ebert's suggestion of the masterpiece cries and whispers from 1973 a woman dying of cancer finds a faith that her sisters cannot understand or share so yeah uh ebert is is connecting them all as as like a body of work under this sort of you know this rubric of faith and i uh you know and i i'm excited to be able to see more of these films i
1: now that i've i've dipped my toe into the water well it's interesting to note that uh some films that followed not too long after The Seventh Seal, uh, there's a trilogy, and it was kind of viewed as such, I think, because they came out fairly close together. They're very kind of tight little dramas uh, about um, Winter Light is one of them, Through a Glass Darkly, and the third one is called The Silence. Um, and all three of those are on the great movies list. So, you know, he he didn't decide that one one of those films was better than the other. He put all three in the uh, four to four category, and they're all in the books. And, uh, and on the website too of course you can always go on the, the Eber website all the great films are listed there and also the essays that accompany them they're really really good reads and uh, and those films are, are pretty remarkable I, I in fact I I, uh, I have um, the, the, the second and third film I have them on the DVR TCM showed them a little while back and I, I've uh, I'm looking forward to revisiting those Uh uh, through Glass Darkly is actually kind of terrifying, where this young woman is coping with uh, schizophrenia and issues of faith, and, and you know he looks at that line between you know madness and 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 belief, and it's you know I don't think there were a lot of films out there doing that, so I think it's it's kind of important to uh, to recognize that. <music> Moving from Northern Europe, we move down to France for a film by Jean-Pierre Melville. A uh, director of, of, who's primarily known for crime films. Um, things like Bob Le Flambeur*, uh, Le Cirque Le Rouge, The Red Circle, which we talked about on a previous show, uh, Le Samurai with Alain Delon about the lonely uh, and very uh, measured life of a professional hitman from 1967, which is a, a, a terrific film. And uh, now we're getting to one that uh, I've been wanting to watch for a long, long time, and uh, it's been sitting on my shelf. <laughs> For ages, and th- this is this is why we do this show. So we can actually, uh, actually, you know, get at some of these films that we pick up along the way and and uh, mean to get to at some point. And that's uh, so. This is kind of a bit of wish film for ourselves. But the the film is called. Army of Shadows, and it uh, came out in the early 70s. It was his second last film. Uh, it came out in, uh, 19, 1970, and, uh, it was his second last film before he finished off with, um, oh, sorry, not his second last, third last. He made Le Cirque Le Rouge immediately after this, and then Un Flick, um, with, uh, his last film, which is a cop drama, a very intense one with, uh, Alain Delon. But, uh, but here, uh, he doesn't have some of those familiar faces helping him along. This is about the French Resistance during the Second World War, when the Nazis occupied France, and uh, about um, the struggle by this uh, underground army, the Army of Shadows, the Resistance, that uh, fought back against the Nazis any way they could with limited resources and and in a very treacherous uh, environment where you didn't know who you could trust, and uh, and. You know, trying to basically, I mean, they weren't like an army in the proper sense. They weren't staging battles. Um, but there were acts of sabotage, perhaps assassination of key, uh, ranking Nazi officers and so on. And, and a lot of gathering of information and feeding it back to the allies. That was kind of a, they were very much in touch with the allies back in, in England. And, uh, and that film, the film shows that, uh, as we follow them through the, through the back roads of, of rural France, and then even onto a British submarine at one point, where they have to es- es- escort uh, one of their leaders and some uh, some escaped uh, prisoners and and Allied soldiers behind enemy lines, get them out of the country via U boat. So it's uh, there's a there's a lot of a lot of uh a lot of. Skullduggery, uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of double dealing and uh, and also a lot of trust required between uh, between these people and it's it's uh, it's a fascinating look at this period in history. Um, it's based on a novel that actually came out while the war was still on, uh, which is pretty amazing to think that the, I'm assuming the writer of the novel had. Escaped France was not. Was yeah, not, yeah. Some kind of country. he had some
0: experience with the resistance, so he was writing from personal experience. Uh, Joseph Kessel, yes, um, and the filmmaker, of course, Jean-Pierre Melville, also had some experience with the resistance. Um, in, in the opening quote in the film is "Unhappy memories, yet I welcome you. You are my long lost youth." Um, Roger Ebert wrote about Army of Shadows. Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows is about members of the French Resistance who persist in the face of despair. Rarely has a film shown so truly that place in the heart where hope lives with fatalism. It is not a film about daring raids and exploding trains, but about cold, hungry, desperate men and women who move invisibly through the Nazi occupation of France. Their army is indeed made of shadows. They use false names. They have no addresses. They can they can be betrayed in an instant by a traitor or an accident. They know they will probably die. This is not a war film. It is about a state of mind. And that feels pretty accurate to me. I, I was... Uh, kind of amazed at the sort of dour darkness, I mean, you know, of the film and how it doesn't it's not paced or it's not um, shot or directed like a thriller. This is a story of people. I mean, it's the film is got this slate blue palette. Even the daytime scenes seem weirdly muted, like the sun is always behind a cloud. I mean, it, it's a dystopia. France at the time was occupied and not only are these people, I mean, France has given up they have they have surrendered to the germans so the people who are in the resistance are not only fighting the occupying forces but they're also in vichy france they're also fighting their own police people of like other french people yes, who are exactly. who are working around them so they have almost like two different oppositions and they have to meet secretly in order to make things Happen to change things, but it does feel much of it feels like they're just sort of walking around. No one, no one's very expressionful. No one laughs. No, everyone is so dour, and that that sense that death is around any corner is pervasive through the characters' lives. And yeah, they they don't know. Like there isn't even a sense that 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 their cause is. Is giving them much joy or pleasure or anything? This is this is a very self-serious film in a way that you know we talked about how the Seven Seal was parodied. Um, this feels like it's pretty open to parody too. If anybody wanted to, I don't know if if maybe in France Melville was parodied, but but there's a one moment I and and there's there's a woman moment, moment one of the characters has been compromised and the Nazis have given her two choices: to give up the names of the other members in the resistance, or her daughter will be sent to a Polish whorehouse and. <laughs> It's like that to me. That line seems so funny in a way, but then I realized, well, of course, it's not funny, it's terrible. It actually happened, <laughs> it actually happened. But it's anyway, if you wanted to go that way and, and make fun of this kind of because it's so humorless, it but you know, Melville to his credit he's just he's he's very straight faced, he's very serious, and this is the story he wants to tell in it, and it's uh it's
1: very intense. My, my favorite bit of moment of levity is when our, when our hero who's played by, uh uh, is it Lino Ventura, I think? Yeah. yeah Lino Ventura. Ventura. Yeah. Is, uh, Philippe, uh, Gerbier. And he's being, uh, he's been arrested already for the first time and he's being transported to a camp. And the, you know, the, the police officer or whatever, who has him in the back of the van is saying, well, we built the camp to hold all the Germans we thought we were going to capture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but then we didn't, you know, then we, we didn't capture any Germans. We just, you know, surrendered, capitulated. So now we can use it to hold Frenchmen. So I guess yeah. it worked out. Yeah. And it's very. he said
0: it's very comfortable. He's basically selling it. It's like, yeah. it's very comfortable. You'll be fine there. Yeah. So, so yeah. The, well, you're, we'll put you in the, the, the place
1: meant for the officers.
0: Yeah. So. And, and everyone is, you know, standing around the camp with their long trench coats and their fedoras. And it's, and every it all, I mean, you know, I, um, it does kind of feel a little bit like a gangster film based on the way people are dressed. Oh, yeah. But it, but it, it was it, the 40s. It was the 40s, <laughs> yeah, of course. But it just has that, that look. And and Ebert said about uh, Lena Ventura his, with his hawk nose and physical bulk, introspection and implacable determination. To overact for Ventura would be an embarrassment. Like, it's true. <laughs> he is so chill. You can. He's so well cast because – he doesn't have to say anything, and yet you can't help but think, "Oh, this guy is the coolest guy amongst them."
1: Yeah, so much of this film is internalized, so you'd really have to read the faces and stuff. But it's still pretty gripping. I think it's like two hours and twenty-four minutes or something like that long. Did not feel like that to me. It, it just because every moment there's there's an underlying tension in every moment, either because of the threat of the Germans or because of you know the you know the inner tension of the resistance, where they may have to you know they think they think you gave anything away. You, you, Even if you didn't, the thought that you might have or might in the future uh, means that, you know, your own side is going to take you out because they can't risk, uh, you know, the slightest crack in the facade. And, um, you know, we the, and, and, and the journey, you know, the, even even though the Army of Shadows is about the characters that were basically presented with. um, The the Germans are pretty shadowy themselves. We don't get the evil German Gestapo officer. We Mm -hmm. don't see the, you know, we don't see the scenes of torture. We just see somebody tied to a chair with horrible, horrible bruises all over their faces and, and you have to, your mind can fill in the gaps. You don't need to see somebody being hit with a phone book or, or anything like that to know what, what is at stake here and what these guys risk at any time they get arrested or, you know, in one case, one guy gets arrested on purpose so he can deliver a cyanide pill to, um, to a comrade who's, uh, who's been, uh, taken into custody cause they know he's not never going to get out. And, uh, and, you know, and just the, the, that kind of sacrifice, I think is, it, you know, it's presented in a very understated way, but you get the, the enormity of what, uh, these people were putting on the line. And that's an amazing thing about it. Um, I'm not going to read David, um, Thompson's, uh, uh, what he has to say about the film is it's pretty brief, but he, he can't, he's not that big on this film either. He feels like it was basically just one of his gangster films set during the French resistance, <laughs> you know, obviously because of the fedoras and the coats and everything like that. But it has the same tone as some of those later gangster films um, of his, but it's still, it, it feels different. It feels like, like the sense of sacrifice and, and, you know, risk and, and whatever honor can be had out of this, because of course they're, you know, they feel like, in a lot of the times, they're fighting their own people, their own yeah. countrymen, and and, and yeah. I, I feel that there's a lot more going on than 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 just a gangster film set during the Nazi regime. Yeah, kind of I
0: think I think for for Melville, you just feel the sense, the filmmaker. This is personal for him. Yeah. this is his stories, and he he's not only working from this book as a source material, but his own life. And and yeah, you, I feel I feel that in in the in the uh, exchanges. Um, one of my favorite moments is when. Uh, that lead character you mentioned, Gerbier, has he's escaped from a mo- from a from an office where he's uh, about to be interrogated, and he runs down the street and he gets he steps into a barber shop. To get his uh, his his face uh, get a shave, shave off his mustache, and the barber knows exactly there's something going on here. But no mm-hmm. words are exchanged at all until the very end, when the barber offers him a different coat. He says, you know, he says it's not as fancy as yours, but they like
1: exchange <laughs> jackets, and that to me was really really interesting. Yeah, and that scene in that scene, if you if you know the history at all, there's a poster on the wall of Marshal Pétain, who is this French. Hero of the First World War, who was an officer obviously in the First World War, um, who uh, was responsible for an early French victory when they actually had French victories in the First World War, such as they were. And uh, I think Verdun, maybe, might have been. So he was the hero of Verdun. And uh, so he was a highly regarded figure um, in France. And then when the Germans took over, he was put in charge of. the Vichy government, basically the the French government that ran the country under basically Nazi occupation. So he went from being a hero to kind of a really, you know, kind of disregarded character, but he was the the French authority during that period. So there's a poster of him on the wall uh, of the picture of him and some quotes or what he said and what he did or something like that. So obviously that's meant to cast doubt into, uh, uh, Gerbier's mind about like how safe is it? <laughs> Cause he's in the heart of Vichy at this point. I think, I think that hotel is kind of meant to represent, um, you know, hotel terminus the, in the, the Klaus Barbie documentary where, you know, the, the, basically he was one of the top Nazis in, uh, who did a lot of the torturing and so on in, in France of French resistance fighters and so on. And, um, that hotel I think is, is kind of a reference to that, but they didn't use the same name, I suppose. um, so, you know, there, there, this film is very much rooted in, in the reality of it. Um, I think Melville took some flack for making some digressions from the novel, but I think he didn't want it, uh, from what I've read, he didn't want it to be too factual. You know, he really wanted it to be about the state of mind of these people and it didn't want to, like, historically recreate these events of of um, the resistance. And I think a, not. I think a decade before, like, we'd had The Train, you know, the Burt Lancaster, mm-hmm. Are, we which Frankenheimer, about that, yeah. which we talked about, which is a great film. You know, and and talks about you know the there was there'd be the resistance, and then there'd be the average French citizen who you know basically of course held the Nazis in disdain and had no desire to help them would kind of just you know, they wouldn't necessarily be resistance fighters, but they'd maybe slow things down a little bit, so the resistance guys could do their work and and you know it was you know, you know, I'm not going to go to the wall, but I'll you know, I'll throw a little wrench into the monkey wrench into the works, just yeah, to, just to kind of. Uh, make things difficult for the Germans and so on um, the uh, the other thing about this film that's interesting the uh, the opening shot is it's a static camera the camera's you know kind of nailed down and it's just a, a shot of the Arc de Triomphe and just slowly the, the, this ger- these parade of German soldiers comes marching into view and then basically directly at the camera and it's and it just that says it all it says everything about the German invasion you need to know like these this grim, uh, fascistic force on the streets of Paris, you know, the, 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 the city of enlightenment and, and, and art, and there's the Arc de Triomphe. And then, uh, the very last shot of the film is a shot of the Arc de Triomphe seen through a car windshield, um, by, uh, our group of, uh, resistance fighters before, uh, the end titles kind of tell us what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, although a lot of them are fictional stand-ins for real life, uh, resistance fighters but uh but it, it begins and ends with the arc de triomphe and the, the kind of the idea that you know that you know that that some things are eternal i guess and that you know this period did come to an end thank goodness but not without uh, not without a great cost and yeah i think yeah. that's what he wants to get across it, it's it's also part of a, an unofficial trilogy um because uh, one of melville's very first films the silence de mer silence of the, the ocean or silence of the sea um is about a confrontation between a Nazi officer and uh, a French academic, you know, who's sort of known for his anti-fascistic uh, writings. And uh, And then there's uh, Leon Morin, Priest, um, with uh, Jean-Claude Belmondo. Um, and, uh, and that's an early 60s film about a priest who's kind of trying to serve his uh, parish while the the Germans are occupying, which is also worth a look. Um, so it's it's you know it, it's not just gangster films with this guy. He also has a return to uh, this time, uh, you know, when he was kind of part of this these amazing events on the world stage.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I wanted to say also, although we talk about how dour and serious the film is, Ebert takes a moment to say that there are moments of excitement. Uh, but they hinge on decisions, not action. Gerbier at one point is taken prisoner and sent to be executed. The Nazis march their prisoners to a long indoor parade ground. Machine guns are set up at one end. The prisoners are told to start running. Anyone who reaches the far wall without being hit will be spared to die another day. Gerbier argues with himself about whether he should choose to run. This is existentialism in extremis. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> you know, And actually, you know what he cho- chooses to do, I won't say what it is, but it uh, it actually provides him an avenue for escape and to extend unexpectedly extend not the way the Nazis expected, but but yeah, it uh, these kinds of decisions, life and death decisions are happening all the time in this story with these characters, even if it's just about decisions rather than than actions and explosions. <laughs> So Caché or Hidden from 2005, directed, for, directed by Michael Haneke, who is a filmmaker. This was the first one of his films that I had seen. And I watched it at the Oxford, the late lamented Oxford. And I remember walking out of the cinema and immediately wanting to go back in again and watch it again. That doesn't happen to me too often where I'm so uh, gripped by a film that I feel like, oh, I need to, to re-experience that. And this is a film, it's, it's, it's filmmaking as a puzzle. It is very much ambiguous about some of, its, uh, some of its actions and it leaves a lot yet to be concluded based on, based, you know, in comparison to a lot of Hollywood films wherein we're spood-fed every plot point. This, is, this leaves uh, questions unanswered and, but in a way that you know that the filmmaker knows the answers to them but he's maybe just not letting on. Ebert stated out in his review... How is it possible to watch a thriller intently two times and completely miss a smoking gun that's in full view? Yet I did. Only on my third trip through Michael Haneke's cachet did I consciously observe a shot, which forced me to redefine the film. I was not alone. I haven't read all the reviews of the film, but after seeing that shot, I looked up a lot of them, and the shot is never referred to. For that matter, no one seems to point to a conclusion that it might suggest. Now, when I read that, I was assuming he meant the final shot in the film, which is... It's which is a um, uh, two characters meet in a crowd outside a school. One could easily miss that if you're not paying attention to yeah, that. Yeah, it's like part the end of the credits screen. are rolling, basically. Yeah, basically. But this isn't actually what Ebert's referring to. We'll, well, by the end of this little conversation, I'll mention what it is that Ebert is the, the shot, the one because he, he, he explains in the review where to find the shot at like 20 yes. minutes and. 30 seconds. And it's not really
1: a spoiler to reveal what it is. No, no,
0: it isn't. So, but uh, it shouldn't be. Nothing we're about to say about this film should be considered a spoiler because the film itself doesn't spoil things. No. It it leaves multiple conclusions for you to draw based on the information it provides. Basically, it's a story about an upper middle class Paris family, intellectual parents, 40 something, Georges and Anne, played by Daniel Othiel and Juliette Benoche, and their teenage son, Pierrot. Someone has been sending them videotapes in the mail, videotapes of their home from the exterior. Someone is watching them all the time, and this is someone who knows a lot about George's past because they send drawings, images, faces with bloody mouths, and that means something to George, but he will not admit it to Anne. He won't say what it is that's going on, but we as viewers start to piece it together. It has something to do with a man named Majid, played by Maurice Benichoux, who knew George as a child and, uh, and how George and his family, well, I mean, it's, it's basically about how they interacted with Majid and, and their relationship and their past. So this is a film with a lot of static shots. Everything is very still, and we as the audience sort of become watchers ourselves, voyeurs on the videotapes that we're seeing um, that start to fracture the family's lives. Now, Ebert smartly points something out which i had never occurred to me but it's absolutely true that static shots in film are objective moving shots are subjective and in this film when the camera moves you you are sure it's a subjective perspective it's
1: the the cuz the camera is still so often what did you make of the film stephen oh i i found it completely engrossing i mean you know starting with that opening long shot of the house and we're not sure what we're seeing or what we should be looking for, it, and at first it seems like a still, and then a bicycle goes by, and you realize, oh, this is okay. Obviously, we're this is the house where the things are going to happen. Yeah, and there yeah. Are, you hear birds a little yeah, bit chirping yeah. in the background, There's a little bit of a bit of uh, ambient noise, and then of course we find out we're watching the same thing the characters are watching, which is a videotape, of the static shot, and of of the house that's just been left on their their doorstep to kind of basically to spook them out, and. It's funny because then you know there's frequently shots up the street where the shot was taken from and you can't really tell where where was the camera where was the camera because mm-hmm. it was you know is it I mean it's above the cars and it's it's is it on like is it on somebody's balcony is it sitting on a windowsill which is maybe possible maybe mm-hmm. you know then and, and maybe zoomed in a little bit on, on the house or whatever it's 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 you know it's funny it, it's it this kind of not a god's eye view but it's it, it's an odd shot that it's hard to imagine how it was made and there's there's another tape later on in the film where you kind of have to think okay well we we're seeing this tape but how was this tape made um and uh, and watching this thing kind of unspool i mean it it's a mystery it may be the most conventional film that Haneke has made in some ways mm-hmm. and, and he uh, tends to be a much of a provocateur he, at, Yeah, his films doesn't he um I mean there is a message here uh certainly in the in that uh it it ties into how the country of france treated its Al- Algerian uh immigrants and refugees uh you know which is horribly uh and you know an issue which continues to this day and uh but but it it unveils it unfolds like a mystery as we try to find out where the tapes are from and then there's a tape that's like recorded from the from the window of a car as it drives down a street and past an apartment building. And it leads, basically leads, um, you know, Ote to, uh, you know, this, this mysterious person from his past, uh, who, uh, apparently he hasn't thought about in years and years and years and years. Cause he was only what, uh, a kid, six, like, six, or, six, seven. Years old, six when, or seven when they last
0: saw each other, you, you know?
1: know, when, when, uh, when he was taken away from his family home. Uh, but, there's a lot of white guilt basically wrapped up in this mystery and uh and and haneke digs his heels in into it and uh you know um Ote is supposed to be he's an intellectual he's supposed to be a man of letters and, and but yet these old you know inbred family instincts i guess kind of kick in um and he just digs himself further and further into this hole uh you know especially with his wife yeah who doesn't understand like i mean she can read him like a book and she doesn't understand why he's lying and being evasive, and 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 as viewers, it's kind of hard for us to understand it too. It's like, well, why doesn't he just tell her what happened? And but he never, you know, he never really comes clean about it, hundred percent. And uh, uh, it's it's shame, it's guilt, it's it's all these things that uh, are kind of driving him down the wrong paths and yeah. to take all the wrong actions. Yeah.
0: No, absolutely. And he is he is as the sort of patriarch of the family, uh, you know, the driving force of a lot of what goes on, but he could have made it so much easier for himself if he had just admitted what had happened when he was with his family back when he was a child. I mean, he was a child. It it wasn't his fault necessarily. I mean, as much as you can blame a child for their behavior, uh, but he is so – he has such a hard time admitting to anything. He lies to his wife. But then – uh, you know, the heart of the film sort of to me feels like Juliette Binoche is, I mean, she's often feels to me like the most empathetic character in any of her films. But uh, here, there is the suggestion that she's lying to her husband because there's a sort of a subplot there is a, a, or a supporting character with whom she is very familiar. And it's hard to know whether or not that's yes. just sort of like French familiarity or whether there might be something else going on that she might be uh, having an affair. But it's, Again, something that's suggested is a possibility that she might be lying about that, but we don't know for sure. Then there's the teenage son. He has a role to play in all this as well, and there are a couple of scenes with him, and we're not sure if he's being completely upfront about his motivations or what he knows. Uh, He seems to be angry at his mother at one point, um, but then he's very—he seems to be—and then there's there's a suggestion that maybe he's angry with his father, but he doesn't seem to—anyway, there's a lot— that is unanswered. And I love that. I mean, yes, it's not me like, it's in a different kind of picture. This would be frustrating, this unresolved, this deliberately unresolved element would be frustrating. But in this kind of movie, where you know that the filmmaker has the answers, he's just parceling them out very gradually, or sometimes not at all, uh, is, <clears throat> is really delicious. And this is what I like the most about it. And, you know, it's, it's that final shot. That final shot gives you some hint as to a plot revolu- a resolution, some plot resolution, if you know where to look. But I remember the first time I saw it on the big screen, as I mentioned at the Oxford, I didn't see it. And then I went home and I read a bunch of reviews and they mentioned that final scene. Yes. And so I had to go mm-hmm. back. I would have gone back anyway, because I was fascinated by the film, but I had to go back in order to see what those other people were seeing. And then I was like, okay, so here are two characters who haven't we haven't seen together through the whole movie meeting. So something, something about that relates to what we've just watched, and I don't know exactly what it is,
1: and I don't know how it happened, but there, this is a clue to what we've seen. Yeah, you, you, it's almost like you have to, your mind has to fill in the gaps uh, and imagine a whole other movie taking place like in parallel <laughs> with this movie, because obviously, the character and, and and in a way, it, it kind of plays with the whole structure of films, like. Because you watch a movie and you watch you see you have a bunch of characters and they do a bunch of things that are tied to the story and further the plot, and you know they it comes to some sort of conclusion um but of course, this movie implies that the characters have lives outside of what happens on screen in the movie, like for example, you know what does Juliet Binoche do all day? We're not you know or and and what's the sun up to like you know the, there are hints that you know well. Daniel O'Toy is running all over Paris. The rest of his family are doing other things that may or may not be connected to what's going on in his life. But uh but I love how it plays with that idea that, you know, that the characters may may just have richer lives than the events that you see happening in the film and, and uh and you have to use a little bit of imagination. But um I mean it's it's a very enjoyable film. I I don't want to make it sound like the film is too vague about what happens in, in yeah. over the course of the film. No, like absolutely. you can you can piece it together pretty readily or piece together your version of what you think it might be. But it, it, it's not like it's a it's not like you're watching this going what the heck is going on in this movie? Like you you know he's not going to leave he uh, Haneke doesn't leave you hanging in the breeze. Like you you know the the story is fairly uh followable. Uh, for lack of a better word, but but there are, are other things going on that are only hinted at that you can kind of make your own version of the movie, and I think I think you know like five people can watch this film and come up with five different conclusions about what different characters' motives are, or uh, how they did certain things, or what's really going on, um, you know, off the edge of the frame, and uh, and yeah, it's it's amazing that it. That you can watch it like that. Yeah, the only thing that feels a little bit dated is the fact that these, um, these, this
0: footage that is freaking out this family is being presented on videotape. <laughs> yes, and uh, it, it makes you wonder about when the the film is supposedly set. I mean, by two thousand six, I think most people had shifted to to discs or other forms of uh, uh, physical media, and you know, it wasn't long after that that we started catch carrying around you know, um, smaller and smaller. Files in and digital files to share. I, I think, yeah, if this was made now, they would have just emailed him
1: the file, exactly, and he yeah. would have watched it on his computer. And we've seen films like that, of course, up you know by by now. But the, yeah, they're getting VHS tapes, and they still have a VHS machine, um, and it's two thousand five. So yeah, yeah. either France was behind, or this is set a little earlier than maybe (laughs) we had originally thought. This is funny because we just before we started taping the show, I was discussing how I found a multi-region VHS player that can play tapes from all over the world at Value Village on Saturday for fifteen bucks, and ran home to try out a few uh, tapes from Australia to see if the darn thing actually worked. Um, But uh, but you know, it's definitely. I mean, if if VHS isn't dead now, it was certainly uh, uh, certainly getting the last rights in 2005. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, absolutely. Um, now, before we wrap up, I want to bring it back to what Ebert wrote about that shot that made him recontextualize Yeah, he the wrote film. a second
1: piece about it. Like, didn't he write a second essay? Oh, I just read the, oh, okay. I guess the original review. It's possible he may have. There's a, he, there's a second, yeah, Ebert actually went back and wrote another piece just about, you know, that shot and then and the final shot. Well, it's so, possible this is
0: the one I've read, then. and why, I, just, why, I just found it online. Why he
1: had to kind of reconsider everything he thought about the movie.
0: Yeah, um, anyway, so he says, now I call your attention to the shot I missed the first time through. You will find it on the DVD centering around twenty thirty nine. so 20 minutes, 39 seconds. You tell me what it means. It's the smoking gun, but did it shoot anybody? Uh-huh. The shot Ebert's speaking about is the shot of... And there are two shots of of Majid as a little boy with blood on his mouth. And this is the second one. He's sitting in a window seat, and and tellingly, the camera is moving. It moves down a hallway and then turns right, and you see Majid in the window seat. He's sitting there. He's got blood coming out of his mouth, and he's holding something between his fingers. It looks like it might be a broken tooth or something like that. Now, I... I hadn't remembered that shot until you, we watched this this week. I hadn't remembered that shot was in the film. I hadn't remembered that there were two sort of flashbacks to a child with a, with blood coming out of his mouth. Um, and what does it mean? I mean, what is Ebert suggesting that recontextualized the film? Does it mean that George's childhood memory suggests that maybe George did that to the boy, that maybe he had hit him or, or abused him himself, or that someone else in the family had abused him? Uh, it's never really there's there's no conclusion brought to that, but but I'm wondering what Ebert is suggesting is why it's why is that shot the smoking gun? I over to you, Stephen. Tell me what the answer is. <laughs>
1: well, I, I I think it's uh I I think it's an indication of how memories can kind of be corrupted over time, and sometimes they come back into focus, and you realize that something you remembered was either completely wrong or just from the wrong viewpoint. Like um, it's important to note that. Um, so this would be, what, early 60s, I guess, that he, the memory steps stems from? Yeah, I think and so. There was, at that time, I mean, there was still fairly real fear of tuberculosis. And one of the signs of tuberculosis was coughing up blood. And that's why the Majid, this Algerian boy who was staying with his family at their home, fairly spacious, palatial home in the country, um, after his parents disappeared, um, is why he gets carted away. He gets taken away to hospital. Um, because of fears that he might have tuberculosis, although, and uh, and then he never comes back. They, they don't either. The family didn't want him back, or they were, you know, he's in the system now, and he goes to an orphanage after that. Or I don't, I'm not sure, but you know, the, but is it tuberculosis? Like you know, like you say, there's, he's holding something in his hands. We're not sure what it is. It could be, like you say, it could be broken tooth or something like that. And he's perhaps incapable of explaining what happened, or, or keeps his mouth shut about it. And there's so much embedded in that brief glimpse, uh, cause it's just, it's a matter of seconds that we see this uh-huh. and, um, you know, it's, it is kind of the key to everything that Otoy feels and, and, uh, you know, perhaps he, he did misreport it to his parents to be rid of this other kid who was maybe vying for <laughs> affection of his parents. Uh, it's hard, hard to say cause he, he doesn't come out openly and say it, um, the other, one of the other letters that comes is, uh, one of the other pictures that comes with one of the videotapes is a picture of a chicken with its head cut off.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do
1: see that scene as and well. We, yeah. What we, inspired that. Yeah. Anyway. That's, I think my, that might be the first flashback that we get. Yeah. Or the first like legit extended flashback, not just a glimpse of, of a memory, but, um, and, uh, it's interesting that these drawings, these kind of crude looking drawings that come with the VHS tapes, they all spur on these memories and, uh. And you know which, and that you have to look at these kind of drawings and go, well, who would make a drawing that kind of rough and mm-hmm. and so on? And it might implicate a certain character, or it might not. Um, you know that maybe they're drawn that way on purpose. And uh, you know every action that happens in this film brings a whole host of questions and 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 uh, you know and. Judgment on on what different characters do at any point, uh, and uh, you know, and there are some some moments in the film that are truly shocking. I don't, you can't; the, those would be spoilers to reveal. But but um, you know, there are things in this movie that, that do take you aback, and uh, and it's you know, that's that's I guess the power of of, of Haneke's filmmaking. <laughs>
0: It's been our look back at three great movies from Roger Ebert's list of great movies, uh, many of which can be found online. I think his books, you could probably still find those books in bookstores. I don't know if they're still in print,
1: but maybe use bookstores if uh, well, you prefer print. Pretty much all of those essays are on his website too, so yeah. the, that's the easiest way. And, and there's a great, uh, if you go to the Great Movies page on, I guess, rogerebert.com, um, there's a great page for them where they actually show like the posters, poster art for the films, and then you can just click on those and it takes you to the essay. And, it's a great, and you know, it's a great way to explore, you know, some titles you've never heard of and see why they're held in such high regard.
0: Yeah, and I, you know what, I gotta say, as we've done this now three times, we've did it twice in 2017, and now coming back to it, uh, I still miss Roger Ebert. I miss his humor, his insight into films. I would have loved to have read what he thought of a lot of the big movies this year as we plow into Oscar season. I would have loved to have read what he thought of, of you know, the Weinstein uh, Empire collapse and, and Me Too and all of those things because he was, you know, the one thing you could say about uh, Ebert that I think is so true and the thing that inspires me as a writer is that he was not an academic writer. He had this encyclopedic knowledge of film, but he was very approachable and, and uh, accessible in his work,
1: and he he never spoke down to people. Uh, weirdly enough, I, I, you mentioned Weinstein, the Me Too movement, and, of course, Roger Ebert wrote a basically rock and roll Me Too movie in 1970 with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls for Russ right. Meyer. Yeah. So I'm sure he would have some things to say about it and probably bring that film uh, into the conversation in interesting yeah Yeah, he is still definitely missed Um, so
0: uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lends Me Your Ears and uh, if you'd like to reach out to us we have a Facebook page we're also on Twitter Under lends me your ears. And Stephen and I have our own Twitter uh, handles. What's yours, Stephen? Mine is at ns underscore s c o o k e. And mine is named after my blog from uh, halifaxbloggers.ca. It's Flaw in the Iris. We also have a Patreon account if you'd care to share some of your uh, hard-earned dosh with us and uh, help us continue to do this thing that we love to do, ramble on about movies on a regular basis. Uh, Many, many thanks to CKDU88.1FM in Halifax for the use of their studio facilities. They also air this show every second Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And many thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. We appreciate you listening, and uh, I hope you listen to us again. We'll be back with more movie talk. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.